Please, for the rest of us, let us find ourselves in John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Sometimes the Christian life is easy. Sometimes it is hard. Sometimes it is popular. Sometimes it is not. Sometimes it is fun. And sometimes it is difficult. Wherever you are this morning on that spectrum, I want to encourage you. The Lord knows his own. He does not abandon the righteous. And he will forever be the joy of his people. Let us find that joy here in the word of God this morning. John chapter 7, verses 32 to 39. It is hard for us sometimes, I imagine, to depict what it would be like to follow the Lord if we did not have the Holy Spirit from salvation. Have you ever wondered that? What would it be like to follow the Lord if we didn't have the Holy Spirit? In fact, I had somebody ask me once, what would your life be like, do you think, if the Holy Spirit did not indwell you? I said, oh, I know very well what my life would be like. I know very well what my life would be like without him constantly draining me of my sins and my selfishness and pushing me onto Christ. Absolutely, I know exactly what my life would be like. And it terrifies me. It terrifies me because I know my weaknesses. And I know my contribution to salvation. Do you know yours? Sin. Weakness. And constant looking towards self. And yet in the midst of that normalcy of our own lives, we see another law at work within us. Another force constantly driving us towards Christ No matter if we come to a day of selfishness, we can wake up the next morning and see Christ more in his glory. No matter if we fall yet again and see that warring law within our members, that law of sin that continually tries to upset us, still the Spirit of God making intercedence for us and bringing life from these dead bones. As we find ourselves in John chapter 7, we are faced with a promise from Christ regarding a coming change that's going to be for the people of God. No longer will they be simply trusting in the Lord for salvation. They will be indwelt by the Lord. That there is going to be something that happens to them that won't be just enough to satisfy their thirst, but out of their hearts would flow something that would quench other people's thirst. The importance of fellowship makes itself known once again. I want to read this uh, before we even get started, before we even get into a full introduction of it, because it is a complicated text, but I want us to be able to appreciate it. So I'm asking you to stand in honor of God and his word with John chapter 7, verses 32 to 39. A sermon entitled, Rivers in the Desert. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. 
And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does this man mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. It was on the last day of the feast, the great day, that Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Our Father, we sit before a wonderful text. We sit in front of such great promises and the descriptions of things that in Jesus' day were to come, but in our day has already come. Father, teach us what it means. Teach us to love your word. We pray that your spirit who inspired these words so many years ago and preserved them through our fickled history, illumine them to our hearts this day that we may love your word and we may love one another and love you. We pray these things, Father. We know that they are beyond our abilities. And so we pray for your spirit to bring them to us. We pray in your son's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I think if most Christians are honest with themselves, they do not know what the Holy Spirit does. And yet Jesus here makes specific reference to the reality that such a life-giving person as the Holy Spirit is will not just approach each person individually. No, in fact, his effect in their lives will be that that life-givingness will flow out of them. There is something that is unique about being a Christian after Christ versus being an Old Testament saint. These two effects are different. They are so different, in fact, that that is what our Sunday school class each Sunday morning is about and working up towards. What is it that the Holy Spirit has done? What is it that he is doing? And what is it that he is currently doing in the church? Besides all of that, when we sit down in this story, we get this picture and we jump back into this passage where the crowd is divided. They're trying to assess for themselves, and John is including this example of saying there are those who are convinced that he is the Christ and there are those who are not. And John is speaking to his readers and saying, you fall in one of these two camps, reader. You are either convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one through whom all life comes, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Or you are those who skeptically look at him and go, it hasn't reached my burden of proof yet, as though our burden of proof was important or significant in any way. The crowd is arguing over this. Many people believed in the Lord Christ. They said when the Christ appears... How could the Christ do more signs than this man has done? How has it not been that this is consistent with everything that God has said throughout history? Well, the Pharisees, being as they are, those who want leadership in Israel to be all about them rather than Christ, 
Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these things and interrupted. They sent officers to arrest Jesus. Now, we know that he cannot die before his hour, because all things come after the will of him who sent him. But here it is that the Pharisees intend to arrest him and to destroy them, or to destroy him. And Jesus answered back to those who came to arrest him, and he says, I will be with you just a little while longer, and then I'm going to go to him who sent me. Now, obviously, it is clear from the text they have no idea who he's talking about. And this is something that Jesus makes clear over and over and over again. If you believed in the Father, you would recognize me. Now, I want us to consider this for a minute. When Jesus says that if they truly sought to worship the Father, that they would recognize him, what does he mean about that? What would that be like? Have you ever wondered that if you lived before Christ, if you would have served the Lord in a way that you would have recognized the Lord Christ when he came to town? How is it that somebody was to recognize him? It wasn't just from miracles that he did. It was in the words that he said. It was when he preached. It was what Israel was to be looking forward to. What were they to be looking forward to? What were they to see? What were they to anticipate in this coming king? For those of you who are working through Isaiah with me right now in Sunday school, you would recognize that God has been telling this story for hundreds and hundreds of years. There is a servant that's going to come. People are going to hate him, despise him, reject what he says, but he is going to speak of the kingdom of heaven in a way that nobody has ever imagined. He is going to usher in a final resolution to all sin. He's going to die in their place. He's going to rise from the dead. This is all spoken of throughout the prophets, throughout the Psalms. They even told the manner in which he would die. That he would do away with all sin. That he would accomplish these things. That he would speak of things to come. That his, that his heart would be filled with zeal for the house of the Lord. How many places? How many things? And for one who is truly seeking the Lord, even in the Old Testament era, would have recognized Christ. And he says this over and over and over again. And it is why the crowd is divided, because all those who belonged to the nation of Israel weren't saved. And what he addresses here is the reality that every crowd is going to be divided over him. Everyone. In fact, some houses are going to be divided over him. And he expresses this very thing in his teaching. If you're not willing to lose father, mother, and brother and sister, and even your own life, don't follow me. Why does he say that? It says, because the reality of the teaching of Christ divides those whom he is saving from those whom he is not. And so he says to them, as far as for his physical existence with them, in verse 33, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Again, reminding them of limitations. You are skeptical. John is including this. You are skeptical because of the lack of ability that you have, but it is the very lack of ability that shows you that you can't trust your reasoning on this. Can you go to heaven and verify the things of Christ? Or do you have to take God's word for it? How many of you have seen heaven? Any of you? How many of you have seen Christ face to face? How many of you have 
had an out-of-body experience where you experienced the celestial realms of heaven? Any of us? None of us. Then how do we know anything about it? How do we know anything about it? God says it. He speaks on these things. And we take him at his word. And the reality is, is if we take him at his word, what are we going to think about Christ who speaks the same words? We're going to believe him too. When he speaks of life, he speaks of it on a level that it says, you do not have this of your own. It must be given to you. As John is speaking to his readers, he's saying it on the exact same level. You need life. And if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the antithesis? You won't have life. You will only have that which ends in death. You see, it is not just true to say, John is writing these things that you may believe and live. The opposite is also true. If you do not believe on him, You stay dead. It is not a choice of life and better life. It is a choice between life and death. And what John is drawing us to is, if you're going to depend only on your ability to verify these things, you'll end up at death. You don't have that ability. You don't have that perspective. And Jesus is saying to the whole crowd, and even to those who are arresting him, I'm going to leave soon. You're not going to be able to even look me in the face. I'm going to him who sent me. You will not be able to come there and verify these things. And the Jews said to one another, and this is all the crowd, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? This is Greek-speaking Jewish people. Is he intending to go out into the Roman Empire and, and to teach all of them as well? To those Jews who don't live in Israel? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? And then John just jumps to the end of the week, leaving them hanging with a question. Jesus has already expressed where he's going to go. We know where he is from because we have the benefit of hindsight and John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and not anything was, that was made was made not through him. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw him. We heard him. And here we pass that message unto you. And John, in doing this, leaves us hanging with that question and then jumps us to the last day of the feast, verse 37. And this is where we're going to sit for this today. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, what a difference from the beginning of the week, right? The beginning of the week, he wasn't even going to go up yet. He went in the middle of the feast, and then he went privately. Even his own brothers didn't know about it. And then he started preaching, he started teaching, and then he started teaching in the temple. And then he started conversing with the Pharisees directly and all the leaders in the temple. And now he stands up at the center pinnacle of the entire feast and cries out loudly. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Now, if you believe the Lord's word, your mind should go immediately back to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, come to me and drink from the water of life without payment. What is it about water that's so important? And what he is expressing is the same thing that John included the story of the woman at the well for. She's so frustrated living in the desert of having to come to this well and draw out water every day. And what does Jesus promise her? I have water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. And she's like, that sounds wonderful. I don't like drawing water out every single day. I don't like having to do this every single day. She missed the point. The same point that the entire crowd that were coming to make Jesus king because he gave them free bread was missing. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. You eat me, you drink me, this is life. All of it is a modicum of the salvation that's coming in his name. And so when he comes to them and says the same thing, come and drink, no cost. It doesn't cost anything to follow me. Though in following me, it may cost you everything. Those who seek to preserve their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake, Jesus says in another location, will find it. It means that this life that we have been gifted by God when we were born into this world belongs to him. We are to follow him. We are to to devote ourselves in following him in every moment of the day, not so that we can please him, but because he is living that life through us. And here Jesus talks about this exact thing. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, and here we have John including this as one of the overarching pinnacles. Whoever believes in me, just as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We're going to get into John's uh, editorialization of this in a second. Let's stick with that. Why? Why? Is it that belief and faith in Christ brings life? Why is it that we are saved by faith and not works? Have you ever sat down and wondered this? We know that it is because scripture says it, but why is it so? Why is it that we are saved by faith and not by works? Why is it we are not saved by some other random virtue? Why faith is the way that it comes to us? That's it. The glory is all God's. Faith is not a work. Faith is reliance. Faith is a dependence. The acts of salvation, the fulfillment of the law, the holiness, the glory, all of it belongs to God, not us. And the only way that God preserves his glory is to save people by doing the law on their behalf. Let me put it another way. The standard that sits against mankind is the same standard that has always sat. Leviticus 11.44, you must be holy because I am holy. When you hear that, do you immediately go, well, you know what? I have a great way to make myself holy. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna set up some good rules, I'm gonna set up some good parameters, what's gonna happen? You'll sin. And immediately our holiness is dashed on the rocks and any hope of it whatsoever. You say, well, that's just the Old Testament. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, very last verse. You must be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. So you want to follow the New Testament rule? Let's go to it. Let's intend our lives to be perfect. Now what? What happens before you even lay your head down on your pillow tonight? Sin. Even if you weren't given opportunity to sin, intentions. And Jesus, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is constantly driving us back. You think you're so good because you haven't committed adultery? Did you want to? You think you're so good because you haven't murdered anyone? Have you hated somebody? Have you failed to love them as yourself? He's showing us the depth of depravity and of sin in our hearts. And he expresses to us, out of such hearts only comes rivers of death. No matter what we intend... We will never, ever fix the problem. And that is that our current trajectory is death. Even though we live today. And we preserve this life and we try to preserve this life, we will lose it. Just like every other person in the world. And so what does Christ say? There is something that takes place that causes what comes out of our hearts to not be rivers of death and destruction, but rivers of life. Here, in the desert of a fallen, deadly world. Oasises. You say, what? I thought that the rivers of life were to come from the throne of God and then just come to me, and then I gain the benefit of that. Yes, and then it changes everything. But not before the coming of the Spirit. And this is what John expresses to them. He says, the reality is that in salvation after the cross, something grand has happened. You see, before the cross, it really did have a much more communal, individual feel to it. Here's the law, here's the gospel, here's the hope that God will bring salvation one day. But in the Old Testament, and even in the times of the gospels, the Holy Spirit wasn't given to every believer. In fact, very rarely is the Holy Spirit given to anyone. And in fact, during Jesus' ministry, it was only given to him. The Holy Spirit only indwelt Christ during his ministry. And then after his ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, all of the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem because Jesus had promised something. When I leave, I will send a helper. The Latin there is comforter, and that's how some of our English translations put it. And we usually think of comforter like something on a bed, just like, how oh, it makes me feel nice and snugly. It's not the sense. It's from two words, cum, which means come alongside, and forte, which means strength. It means the Holy Spirit comes alongside us with strength to live a life that we can't live. That's what a comforter is. The reality is that the life that we are called to as Christians is not achievable by humans. There's something else that must be of work. Because friends, unless you know it or not, not only can you not bring life to yourself, you can't bring it to somebody else. You can't. 
And it teaches us humility at a level that we cannot imagine outside of interacting with the Spirit of God. Many, many times is the Spirit of God discounted to be the source of our emotions or maybe our conscience or something? No. The Spirit of God works in ways you cannot fully perceive. The Spirit of God brings life from us who were once dead. The picture is in the middle of a desert, water. Water that wasn't there before. Life-giving, fulfilling. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water just as the scripture has foretold. This is going to be the way of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now John is writing after the advent of the Holy Spirit, but Here, he includes this expression here. Verse 39. Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now that's a lot of information all at once. Let's unpack it just a little bit because it teaches us one of the grandest things about the gospel. When Jesus is expressing these things, he's speaking to people who have never experienced the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. Even those in the crowd who believed him, who were hearing him that day, had never experienced the indwelling Spirit. They just followed the Lord as their own self. Things that modern-day Christians do not understand that experience. Your sin is ever before your face. Your failures are constantly on display because what you see is the law of God and you see just your inability flowing from every pore. The gift of the Holy Spirit has made it that we love the law of God in the core of our being and yet are frustrated by our inability to constantly do it. This is what Romans 7 is all about, by the way. The Holy Spirit continually drives us together, us of different backgrounds, us of different traditions, us from different places and of different languages and different ethnicities and nationalities and all of these things to be able to have a singular people under one roof that may be able to fellowship under the auspices of Christ. We do not need a single ethnicity to hold us together anymore like Israel did, lest we destroy ourselves. There are churches in the East, and there are Orthodox churches even in our town, some of whom are made up of both Russian and Ukrainian Christians. Guess what they have to deal with? Their two countries are at war, and they are in church together. We don't even know what that feels like, do we? No. That's very difficult for us. It's very difficult for us to appreciate the difficulties of that and the ability of the Holy Spirit of God to still bring out fellowship in the midst of things like this. And what Jesus is expressing is that not only will you live, out of you will flow life. It will be something entirely different, 
Something that the scriptures foretold as he expresses here. Now there is no specific place in scripture that talks about this. There's multiple places that as you come and piece them all together, they mean this. And you're welcome to look them up later. Things like Proverbs 4, things like Isaiah 58, 11. Places that will address aspects of these and pull it all together to this reality that those who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in the church age will actually become oases in the desert. But something has to happen first. And did you ever notice this? The Holy Spirit could not come on any broad scale until Christ. Did you ever notice that? It almost seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Why didn't the Holy Spirit just come on those who believed in God from Genesis onwards? Did you ever wonder? You want an answer? This is one of the most grand things about the gospel. Inside the temple, it must be holy. God does not live with sin. God cannot live with sin. The temple of God must be perfect because our Father in heaven is perfect. The temple of God must be holy because our Father in heaven is holy and he who indwells it is holy and the Son of God is holy and the body of Christ is holy and the Holy Spirit is holy. God only lives in holy temples when he lives in this world. Before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, humans were not holy temples. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he has made those who believe in him his temple. What does that tell us about our standing before the Father? We are holy as he is holy. We are perfect as he is perfect. You say, but I look at my life and I don't see holy and I don't see perfection. Correct. Correct. But God does. Not because he's turning a blind eye to your sin, but because your sin has been nailed to the cross and given to Christ. And what Christ had, that perfect holiness was gifted to you. That cannot happen that the Holy Spirit dwells people in this manner before the cross. And so when Jesus is going to the cross, he looks at his disciples and he says, do not leave Jerusalem. Wait here for the one who's promised. It is much better. It is much better for you that he come and I go. Do you share that opinion? That it is much better for you to have the Holy Spirit than Christ himself sitting in this room? That's what he says. He even says to Thomas, you have this ability to verify these things and to put your hand in my side and put your fingers in the nail marks. You believe because you've seen, and then John includes this story for us, Blessed are those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have never seen him. 
There's a special relationship they have because it is not just based on seeing him physically. It is being indwelt by his spirit forever. Out of our hearts flow rivers of living water. We actually become a conduit of God's salvific purposes in this world. You say, well, how does that work? Do we just do good works and everything works out well? God knows, and he will do it. He said, well, how much water, and, and, and at what point, and how do I know whether the spigot's on or not? It's not for you to be concerned about. God uses us to accomplish his purposes. And my friends, here's the comforting and terrifying part of it. You will not be able to anticipate it. I preached a sermon once that I was very convinced was one of my worst sermons of all time. I have since been informed by multiple people that was definitely not the worst one. There's plenty of others. But this one particularly was just a rotter in my mind. And wouldn't you know it, someone comes up to me three days later while I was still despondent about my failure and hoping everyone's memory laxed, came up to me three days later and said, There was something you said in your sermon that God used to save me on Monday night. And you know that feeling of joy and pain all at the same time? That was when I started learning that has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with me. I I broke every rule of preaching. I probably broke some interpretational rules. I even broke rules that I don't even know exist. God uses our weakness that he may be glorified. And when we see ourselves as weak, then we may be able to walk humbly with our God. When we see ourselves as not the source of people's solutions, but instead a conduit of God's life-giving water that we may just simply give them the gospel without changing it and without morphing it, without making it easier or harder. We just give them what God says. And God works his will no matter the effects. My friends, this is why I pray for us with regards to faithfulness, not outcomes. We can't anticipate the outcomes Don't you know that faithfulness may lead you to lose father and mother, brother and sister, and even your own life? Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. Christ is worth everything. That is why it depends on faith. That the action of salvation may rest in Christ and not you. Let me encourage you, when you're giving your testimony, to not talk about you, but to talk about Christ. Testimony is what a witness gives. Witness in Greek, by the word, by the way, is the word marturios, where we get our word martyr from. We are witnesses of what God has done and of what God is doing. We testify to a world that is dying 
of the life-giving breath of Christ. And here's the thing. It's not about us. It's not about what God is doing in our life, and it's not about what God is doing in our church. It's about what God has done at the cross, what he has done at the tomb, and what he is doing in the whole world. That he is finally going to rid it of sin, your sin, my sin, and the sins of this world. Those who believe in him will live And those who believe in him not will die. That is the gospel. God has set a day on which he will judge this world by righteousness. And he has given proof of that by raising Christ from the dead, death to life yet again. That is the message of the kingdom to come, that this world bent towards death will be created anew. And we'll forever live in a world where the waters of life stream from the throne of God to each one of us. And the tree of life there for the nourishment of the nations and the healing of anything, we will behold his face. Until that day, we live in a desert, my friends. And out of us flows rivers of living water. That's not your good works and my good works. That's the Holy Spirit doing his work everywhere we go. You will not be able to anticipate it. And here's the real fun thing I want to say to those who think they can control the Holy Spirit. You can't direct that river either. You do not control these things. Thank God you and I are not in charge of this. God is going to do this. God will save his people. And we're along for the ride. Glory be to God, my friends. Glory be to God. May his kingdom come. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that you have continually worked in your church and in your people, a hope that is not found anywhere else, and not just any life, but an abundant life, one that is free of our attempts being the best thing that we can hope for. Father, we thank you for making our hearts holy and perfect. That your spirit may dwell in them. Father, we know that sin still dwells in our members and still frustrates us, causing us to do those things that we hate. We know that this war will continue on either until you return or until we are in our grave. We pray you strengthen our hearts Strengthen our resolve that we do not steal your glory nor give it to another, but that we walk humbly with you no matter the outcome. We pray in your son's name. Amen.